if I want to like go do whatever it is I feel like I'm meant to do in the world, which doesn't feel like it's this anymore, I'm going to have to disrupt myself. Like I'm going to have to leave what I'm doing now. I'm going to have to take a step back in order to slingshot forward. And so that's what personal disruption is. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Lewis Howes, disruption starts with committing to excellence and taking a stand for your customer. Our guest today, Whitney Johnson, has built her life and career around disruption. She's been named one of the 50 leading business thinkers by Thinkers 50 and is the author of several award-winning books, including Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work, and Build on an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. Whitney has also been named a Top 15 Coach by Marshall Goldsmith and is the host of the Disrupt Yourself podcast. Whitney, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thank you, Bob. I am delighted to be here. Well, we've had a lot of disruption in scheduling this, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad we made it work. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's funny that you say that. Yeah. It took us a while. Internet connectivity can be an issue sometimes. Basic internet connectivity is still a struggle for no, many. Exactly. <laughs> so before you established yourself as a leading thinker and innovator, you actually got your start as a Wall Street equity analyst. How did that experience serve as a foundation for your career today? Definitely foundational. I think maybe if I can go back just a little bit further. Yeah. Tell us the full story. <laughs> yeah, because I think it, it all plays into this. So I graduated from college in music. And um, when my husband and I moved to New York, because I got married when I was in college, which I know is probably a little bit disruptive too, but we moved to New York. He's getting his PhD at Columbia University. We have to put food on the table. It turns out I'm the one who gets to do that. So I get a job, but because I've been a music major, the only job I can get is as a secretary to a stockbroker, which was good, except that when I would go to work every day and I'd sit next to all the people who were actually stockbrokers, many of whom were men, and saying things like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that you should open this account or throw down your pom-poms and get in the game. And I'm kind of offended because I was a cheerleader in high school, but as that sunk in and I listened to that over and over again, I realized I needed to throw down my pom-poms and basically get in the game. And so I didn't know, I would never have known to call it this then, this is now you know, approaching 30 years ago, I was basically disrupting myself. I was disrupting how I was thinking about myself, what possibilities I believed were available to me. And so that was very much the beginning. I started taking business courses at night, accounting, economics, finance, and then I'm able to move from being a secretary to an investment banker. Um, if any of your listeners know anything about financial services, they will know that that does not happen. Um, but I had a boss who was willing and committed to helping me grow. And so I was able to move to investment banking. I did that for several years. And then there was a shakeup because there was a merger as happens on Wall Street all the time. Um, I also turned out around that time was having our first child. And so they weren't going to fire me because I had good reviews and I was pregnant. So they're like, well, what do we do with her? They're like, let's put her in equity research, which is a huge step back, a, a disruption. I wasn't choosing it. I was being disrupted. But I get into equity research. We're now in 
late 90s and discovered that this step back was a slingshot forward. There were some things that I learned how to do. I learned how to build financial models. I learned how to spot momentum for stocks. I learned how to take a stand. And I think this starts to answer your question is, I remember early on, I was putting my first recommendation on a stock. And I was like, is it a buy? Is it a sell? Is it a neutral? And I was just agonizing, like full of angst. What it's always I- a buy, especially if your bank is issuing <laughs> the stock, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what do I do? And so finally, I had this colleague say to me, his name is Bob Goldman. I, I'm, all, I'm so grateful for him. He said, stop being a shrinking violet, which was a little bit painful at the time. But I realized then that what was so valuable about this experience is I needed to learn how to have an opinion. I needed to figure out like, do I think it's a buy? Do I think it's a sell? And then say, here's why I think this. And here's why I think it's going to go up. Here's why I think it's going to go down. Here are my reasons. Here's the valuation, et cetera. And so that I think in many ways was the single most important lesson that I learned in terms of becoming a thought leader, because you can't become a thought leader if you don't have an opinion. And up until that time in my 20s, I realized that I had shied away from, and I don't know if all people do this, if this is something more distinctly feminine or female, but I had shied away from actually having an opinion. So that was that was very formative for me in terms of being able to do what I do today. Yeah. And you touched on something that we were actually talking about before we kicked off here, I think, which is that you can't please everyone. And so I think when you have a strong opinion, I think for a lot of people, they have to learn to accept that you can't make everyone happy, right? And, and in doing that, it tends to be kind of muted in the middle. But but when you have an opinion, you're going to have some people that love it and you're going to have some people that hate it. And it's a matter of whether you can get comfortable with that to some extent, right? You know, that's so interesting, Bob. You just, as you said, that I, I kind of made a connection that I hadn't made before. So I remember... When I was making those stock calls, I, I came up with a quote, maybe I found it somewhere else, but I, I'm going to attribute it to myself, is that the only safe harbor is your conviction. Because as you say, you know, if I put a buy on the stock, if there people were short selling the stock, they were going to be mad, right? Yeah. If I put a sell on the stock and people were long the stock, like the owners of the company, they were going to be mad. If I were a neutral, then it wasn't helpful. So that was just annoying and frustrating for people. Because like, what do you really think? Because you do have an opinion, but you're not actually saying it's going to go up or it's going to go down. It's not, or it's going to create value or it's not relative to the market. And what you just said is I got really comfortable doing that. The question is, as you're saying this is, to what extent can we use our ability to do that in a professional situation and and have that be an analog for our personal lives of saying, I need to make a call, I need to have an opinion and get comfortable, the only safe harbor is our conviction, get comfortable with the fact that sometimes people just aren't going to like what we do or like what we say and be okay with that, which takes an incredible amount of self-awareness and kind of going to Brene Brown's work, this fundamental sense of our own worthiness, regardless of the opinion of, of anybody else around us other than ourselves. Yeah. And it's not only our worthiness. We do a lot of work. I'm a big proponent. And I talked about this in, in Elevate and Spiritual Capacity around understanding your core values and being able to articulate them. Because I think most of them, we feel it when we hit a red line, but we can't articulate why it was. And that when we're, we're clear on these things, I think it's easier to to lean into our convictions because we understand 
that it's core to us and it's just not going to feel good to go against it, right? We make some of those decisions and they don't feel good. I think, I think the reality is that it probably crossed sort of core value lines. I, I tend to find that when people are clear about their core values, then they feel much more comfortable leaning into something and defending it pretty heavily. Yeah, so good. It's, it's funny though, as I'm listening to you say that I'm like, I find myself wanting to ask you what your core values are. And maybe that, maybe you're not like, Whitney, I'm interviewing you, but I'm actually really curious. But at the same time, I find myself thinking, okay, so what are my core values? It's like, I know I have them. And yeah, I think I do know what one of them is, which I'll share. I remember thinking, well, how do I know what they are? And well, what if I looked at quotes that I really liked? Those might yeah. be clues. And I remember one quote that I've always really loved, loved. And it's Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is, and I'm going to paraphrase, rings and jewels are but apologies for gifts. The only true gift is a portion of thyself. And I love that. And I think when I, and I'm interacting with people and just having a conversation like we're having, or, you know, we were just talking about Thinkers 50 in London last week, is this idea of when I'm talking to a person, am I showing up with a portion of myself as I'm listening to them as I'm interacting? And so I think that's definitely a core value for me. But now I'm really curious, would you be willing to share one of your values? Yeah, I, I share them very publicly because they tie to policies at our companies and they tie to decision. But to mine, mine are uh, health and vitality, finding a better way and sharing it, self-reliance, respectful authenticity, and long-term orientation. There you go. Boom. Yeah, and, and, and sort of the core purpose that sits above those is to share ideas that help people and companies grow. So it, it's very, the way I explain this is if you're driving in a tunnel and it's dark and you have a car, if you hit the wall and are scraping it on the right side, you know you hit the core value, you know you hit the wall, and then you, you kind of go to the other wall. Well, if you can articulate them and it's self-discovery because they're there, then it's kind of like someone turned on the lights and gave you lines. <laughs> and it's much mm. it's much more efficient to get through the tunnel without without hitting the walls. And I, in about 80 to 90% of cases, I, I find that people, they emanate from something formative or early on in childhood where people are very drawn to something that was important to them or very, or seeking something that they didn't have. Yeah, that makes sense. I love it. Love it. All right. But back to disruption. So we're going to disrupt this train of thought. So a lot of people yeah. understand disruption in, in business, how Uber disrupts the taxi industry, Netflix disrupts video rental. But can you, that's really not where your work is centered. So can you define the term disruption as it pertains to a personal development? Yeah, absolutely. So so one of the things, the big ahas that we had when I had when I was working with Clayton Christensen and we had founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund, which he wrote the book, The Innovator's Dilemma, and coined this term disruptive innovation. This big aha that I had was that this theory of disruption, it wasn't just about products, it was about people and that people can disrupt. The big difference with personal disruption is that um, you're Netflix and you're Blockbuster, you're Uber and you're the taxis, you're the, you're the silly little thing, you're the disruptor and the incumbent because you are disrupting you. And so, and the ha came, I guess, from a theoretical standpoint, but it also came from an experiential standpoint. When I was still working on Wall Street, I had gotten a hold of the innovator's dilemma. It was helping me understand 
Um, I was covering emerging markets telecom and like, oh, this is why the wireless companies like America Mobile keep beating my estimates because they're disrupting wireline telecom. But I remember having this experience of I had just gone to my boss and said, hey, you know, I want to do something new. I feel like I'm at the top of my S curve. I didn't say that, but I felt like it's time for me to try something to disrupt myself. And he basically said, we like you right where you are. Like, sorry, but this is where you're going to stay if you want to play here. And I remember reading like this one passage of the innovator's dilemma and thinking, oh, if I want to like go do whatever it is I feel like I'm meant to do in the world, which doesn't feel like it's this anymore, I'm going to have to disrupt myself. Like I'm going to have to leave what I'm doing now. I'm going to have to take a step back in order to slingshot forward. And so that's what personal disruption is. It's this decision to say, okay, I've got this Y axis of success and I might be at 12 right now. And the slope of my line or my trajectory of success is over one, up one, over one, up one. But I believe that if I will move down that y-axis, I will disrupt myself, loss of stature or money or prestige or whatever from 12 to 8. I believe that the slope of my line will now not be over one, up one, but it'll be over one, up two, over one, up two. So we step back to slingshot forward because we believe that in disrupting ourselves, we will be more successful than we would be if we stayed on our current course. So that's what personal disruption looks like. And I know a lot of people know the kind of concept of an S-curve, but you just illuminated in this context. Yeah, absolutely. Happily, because I love talking about the (laughs) S-curve. So so the S-curve is It was developed uh, or popularized, I should say, by E.M. Rogers in 1962, and he developed it to help you figure out how quickly an innovation, for example, would be would be adopted. And so we used it at the Disruptive Innovation Fund in investing of this notion of at the base of the S, a growth, the growth is really slow. It looks like not much is happening, but then you hit the knee of a curve, which so is sort of this tipping point, if you will, and you move into hypergrowth, and then it's saturation that growth tapers off. So the big next big aha that that we had was that this S curve could help us understand how we learn and how we grow. And so with the base of the S, what it tells you is that every time you start a new job, you start a new role, you start a new project, you're at the bottom of that S or the base. And so growth is happening, but it looks and it feels really slow. And once you know that, then that helps you avoid discouragement and you understand, of course, I'm overwhelmed. That's what it looks like here. But then you put in the work and you move into the steep part of the S. And this is where in a little time, a lot happens, unlike at the low end of the S curve, where it takes a lot of time for anything to happen. Um, And you're exhilarated and you know enough, but not too much. And this is the part of hyper growth for you individually from a learning and growing standpoint. And then you get to the top of the S and now you're really good at what you're doing, but you're no longer learning. You're no longer getting dopamine. You're a little bit bored. And so your growth is going to slow. So you basically, you've learned now it's time for you to leap and repeat or disrupt yourself. And when you understand this this mechanism for personal growth that allows you to become more effective in your life and in your work, but it also allows you to build a high-performing team because you understand this mechanism by which a person can become a high-growth individual. And how much of the personal disruption curve is based on sort of the slope of growth or disruption of the company. So does a company growing 30% a year, you know, inherently force more 
personal disruption than than a company that's sort of flatlined because we I, I have a graph that I use. You know, we've been about thirty percent a year for ten years, kind of on mm-hmm. average. Yeah, and, and it shows that like look, you, by the way, <laughs> thank you. It doesn't feels a little rough at sometimes, but <laughs> you know, we have a graph we show people. Look, you need to get kind of thirty percent better or different just to stay on the on the slope. So, are certain environments just in more inherently create that disruption and 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 sort of those challenges? And do other environments make it harder? Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of answered the question already, but yes, absolutely. I mean, I think if, if you look at the, the fact that our environment shapes who we are, but we're free as free agents to shape or choose the environment we put ourselves in, if you're in an organization where it's growing really quickly, then you are going to be in a position where you can grow quickly as well, or choose not to, and then decide, well, this isn't the S-curve for me. I think I'm going to go jump to a new S-curve where it's growing more slowly. And then if the organization isn't a high growth organization, then your ability to grow, um, the onus is going to be more on you. It's almost like you're at the top of an S-curve and you've got to figure out, well, I can either jump to a new one or I can figure out how to jump in place um, by finding stretch assignments for myself on my own or getting coaching or you know, figuring understanding the industry better or how to become a better leader, et cetera. So the short answer is absolutely. If you want to grow faster, then you put yourself in a high growth situation. The work that we do is say, okay, if you're a high growth organization, whether you're a growth stage company, private equity backed, or a fortune 50 that's trying to accelerate your growth, we help you become a high growth individual so that you can, you can help drive the growth of the organization. But of course, if we're high growth ourselves, we all know that we're getting lots of dopamine, which makes means that we're happy. So that's kind of fundamentally what we always want to come back to is how do we help people be happier? And we help people be happier by giving them opportunities to learn. Right. And so you said Benet Brown before. So let's channel that a bit. So we're giving them all we're giving them dopamine, but they also need cortisol. Like I, you know, sometimes the biggest, I think, learning opportunities like don't feel like it at the time. They feel like stress or something broke or, you know, I, I don't find it's like a clean process, but I think when people look back at some of the best work they've done, they would not at the time have told you that they were super happy, you know, at at, at sort of what precipitated it. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I love that. I love the work from Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, the loss aversion theory that we're more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. And I think that certainly is true. There are situations where we learn from what doesn't work or we can. And so then the question becomes, and you know, the, the fifth accelerant of personal disruption is sixth accelerant, excuse me, is to give failure its due. And what I mean by that when I say that is we all fail all the time. And then the question becomes, what do we do with that failure? Do we allow that failure to crush us and we just roll over and die? Or do we say, okay, what can I learn from this in order to to be better? And you and I both can probably cite experiences or instances where these crushing failures have really made us who we are because we were willing to sit back and say, okay, what can I learn from this situation? And we allowed it to make us stronger as opposed to crushing us. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. 
Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a personal failure. It can even just be a business challenge. Like I, I, it's interesting, and this is where I think people have problems disrupting themselves until they're forced to, right? So, so you know, all these friends. I've heard these stories in midlife crisis where you know someone wanted to start this business forever, and like their job was good enough, and they were paid well, and then finally they were laid off, and it forced them to go do the thing, and then they were amazing at it. But it was it was really hard for them to disrupt themselves. They needed yeah. like I, a bunch of my friends in midlife crises, like them getting laid off would be the best thing that ever happened to them. Because it's right. just, you know, they've worked 20 years to get where they are, the money's good, they know the game, but they know it's not what they want to do. And it's not, right. And, right. and it's not making them happy. You know, early, early this year, we got caught fairly short um, on people for where we needed to be. We had some ones we thought we were going to hire that got countered offer. We had a few turnovers and it just, the, the market was really, really tough. And, you know, everyone was kind of freaking out. But then when everyone put their heads on solving the problem or what, how can we interview differently? How do we look differently? Like suddenly you have all this really good thinking because there's a problem to solve, which is really hard to do when it's, when it's working. It almost like some cases it has to stop working before people revisit it. Yeah. So a couple of of thoughts there. I actually have this hypothesis, which you've restated, um, (laughs) is that whenever we, so, you know, in the United States anyway, 15% of the workforce loses their job or is laid off every year. And I have this hypothesis that when we lose a job, when we get laid off, we're actually on the wrong S curve or we're at the top of the S curve. And we know, like we know that we should be jumping and we won't do it because we're more motivated by what we lose than by what we gain. And so we, the universe just gives us a nudge. Like it forces us to do the thing that we knew that we needed to do. So I would, you know, absolutely concur with you on that. The third actually accelerant of personal disruption is to embrace constraints. And what you've just pointed out is that when you're not able to, 
hire the people that you wanted to hire and you find yourself with this constraint of not enough time or money or right people, it can become a tool of creation if you allow it to be. And I, I think from a from a law of physics standpoint, we know that in order to have momentum to do anything, there has to be friction. And so in this particular instance, like you said, it's a business challenge. It can be a failure, but both are constraints that, that we can if we choose to turn them into creations. Well, the constraint thing is interesting. If you think about some of the companies that are considered most innovative have, people always talk about you make better decisions with less money. But sometimes the people with tons of money can throw money at, at different things, those big disruptive companies. But I guess both scenarios are a little bit different. So I, how do you think about that in terms, I, I agree with you. I think you make such better decisions with constraints. You may get to the same thing. You just probably are a little, little smarter about it. Well, it's an optimization question, right? Yeah. So if you have too many constraints, then you're you know, in the developing world and people just can't get anything done because there's just too many constraints and they crush. But we all know situations where people just have too much money and they're not able to make any sort of, too many resources, not just money, but just resources, period. And so they can't make any sort of decisions. I remember there was a study that came out a few years ago that they did this post-mortem of 200 failed startups. And they divided them into the funded startups, the ones that had gone and raised outside capital and the ones that were unfunded. And the number one reason that the funded startups went out of business was they ran out of cash. Like they ran out of money because they hadn't. I was find that funny. The companies with right, the most money run yeah, out of money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the ones that, that had basically built their business on operating cash flow, it was only the number 10 reason. So I think one of the challenges when you're in a resource rich environment is how do you impose constraints such that you're able to get that optimal performance, even though the constraints aren't, you know, don't have to be there. And it's a parenting challenge. It's a, it's a business challenge. And it's a personal challenge, actually, for all of us is getting the right amount of constraints in place so that we will move up our S curve as quickly and effectively as possible. So we were talking about um, knowing your S curve, plateauing. You've written a book called Build an A Team that focuses on how to lead members of a team to improve as the business grows. What are the ways that leaders can make sure they have the right people on their team and that their people are growing with the business or when it's time for that person to make a change? How, how do you know who can make the change, who needs to make the change elsewhere? Um, how do you think of the, the S-curve for a leader and their team? Yeah. So I guess, first of all, I would say is just recognize that everyone on your team is on an S-curve. I remember a few years ago, I was giving a, a lecture and someone said, well, 90% of my people aren't on S-curves. Like they, they just don't care. And he was really frustrated and I got it, but I needed to respectfully disagree that they were on S-curve. It just made His team probably like, wasn't doing that great. If that was his viewpoint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that they were just, this wasn't necessarily the right S-curve for them. And so the first thing, starting point would be look at your team as it's currently constituted. And, you know, we've got this S-curve locator that you can take and just have each person on the team, like take it and be like, okay, so where do you think you're, you are on your current S-curve? Where do I think you are on the current S-curve? And it allows you to start to have this conversation of, okay, well, if you're at the low end or the launch point, then what we now know you need is you need encouragement. You need us to value the fact that you're inexperienced, that you have, you're going to ask questions like, why do we do it like this? And I'm not just talking about recent college graduates. It can be a brand new CEO. Like they're going to 
ask, why do we do it like this? And do we get defensive or are we open to that inexperience and those questions that can open the door to innovation? So you need encouragement and support at the low end of the S curve. When you've got people in the sweet spot, what they need is focus because now they're super capable, they're competent. You kind of just want to leave them alone, but you they need you to continue to push them. Like they need that friction. They need those constraints in order to have the momentum to climb the curve. And they really need you to appreciate them. Like, thank you for the good work you're doing. I do see you. I do appreciate you, which is hard to do because um, our sense of ego doesn't want to say thank you because then we feel like we're in a one down position, but they absolutely need us to do that. And then at the high end of the S curve, you're like, well, they're a master. Like, let's just have them keep doing whatever they're doing indefinitely, which obviously is a real problem because they're not getting that dopamine. So what they need from you is a challenge. And the challenge can come in the form of new stretch assignments. It can come in the form of having them jump to brand new S curves. So what I would say for you as a manager is as a starting point is just understand where are my people on this S curve? What do they need from me right now on the basis of where they are? And how am I going to help them grow or build momentum along that curve? And then what you can also do once you've composed your team is then look at the distribution of the people along the curve. Because what we're starting to see in our research is that the teams or companies that are the most innovative have on average about 70% of their people who are in the sweet spot because they're not only able to ask, but they can also answer questions. They've got 15% of their people at the low end who are asking those questions like, why do we do it like this? But then you also have 15% of your people at the high end who are acting as a stabilizing force for people who are innovating along the curve. They can answer lots of questions, maybe not quite as innovative, but they're stabilizing the organization overall. And when you get that optimized, what that allows you to do is be a high growth organization because you not only have high growth individuals, but you've now got this this cocktail or this amalgam of people, this diversity of thought in terms of where they are in their learning that can allow your organization to innovate. So that's how you can build up into it from an individual to a team to the organization is understanding everybody's on a curve, you manage them along that curve, and then you optimize those curves. And, and I know you, you talk about how the plateau is dangerous, and I'm sure that you have a thesis on this, but you also hear a lot of people say that, not not that this, I don't mean to say that, but you need some B players or you need some people who are just happy where they are in an organization or else you'll kind of have have, have chaos. So I, I know from your perspective, it's kind of dangerous to be at the, at the plateau, but what if people are in a life stage? What if they have something going on outside of work? Like, is there a time and place to kind of hang out there for a while? It's such a great question. And the way I think about it is I would reframe it to if I've got a person who is doing their job and they're doing it well, and like you said, maybe they've got other things that they're attending to at home, they're caring for parents, or they've got young children, or they, you know, they're training for a marathon and, you know, or they're a triathlete, whatever it is. Um, If they're showing up at work every day and they're engaged and doing good work, then to me, they're in the sweet spot of the S curve. Right. I was going to say, I guess the answer to that question is they're being disrupted somewhere else in their life, yeah, right? That's exactly. requiring their sort of attention. Exactly. And so the the metric that you always want to use is like, how long have they been on this S curve? You know, look at their time and role. But the only metrics that actually matter are, are they learning and therefore engaged or are they disengaged and, you know, stagnating and therefore your, your company's suffering. But, you know, I've had people ask me that question on numerous occasions. I'm like, are they doing a good job? Are they showing up and getting done what your organization needs to get done? And their answer is yes. And I'm like, well, then they're in the sweet spot. Like, let it be. 
Not everybody has to jump to new S-curves all the time. And if you've got people that are happy in that role, then they're also functioning as stabilizers within the organization, which is fantastic. And what do you do when they're a fast grower and they, they, you know they're at the top of the S-curve, they want to move, but you don't, you don't have what they need? Yeah. <laughs> I know uh-huh. you're going to know the answer. I know you've got an answer to this too, but how, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll tee you up a little bit for this, but like, what does an average leader do in that situation? And what does a great leader do in that situation? Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. You, you did to me. Well, the, the average leader says, we like you right where you are, right? You know, tough. And then they run the risk, you know, the person's going to leave or they're going to just check out. So that's bad for that person. It's bad for you as a leader because then you're not developing people and it's just bad for your organization. So some of the things that a good leader would do is they would have the conversation with them. And, you know, not too long ago, I was one of my coaching clients who's a CTO. He was telling me about a person on his team who's at the top of his S-curve, super smart, super capable. He explained the S-curve to him and he's like, oh, that's the problem. Like, I love this company. I love working for you, but I'm bored. So then that opened up the conversation of like, okay, so what could you be doing that would make you not bored, that you could continue to to contribute in a meaningful way in this organization? What do you see? So then that, you know, he can say, what do you see? What are some things that you think that we need to be doing that we're not doing? So that idea of like, let's play where no one else is playing from a disruption standpoint. And then you can also say to them, well, okay, but you know, 50 or 60% of my time is currently spent on stuff that's boring and dull for me. And you're like, okay, well, then one of your stretch assignments is to figure out how to take what's taking you 60% of your time, which is dull and boring, and do it in 20% or 30%. How do you innovate your way to not having to spend so much time on that thing? so that they are then able to continue to grow and extend out that S-curve. Now, there are going to be times when there just isn't a role for that person. The smartest thing that you can do is to say to them, you're at the top of the S-curve, there's nothing here for you. How can I help you jump to a new S-curve with a supplier, with a client, um, or just in general? Because then what happens is that you become the best boss ever. And if you've helped one person jump to new S-curves, then there are going to be 10 more people waiting in the wings to work for you because they know that on your watch, they're going to develop. And now you've got a brand ambassador because you've got this person who goes out and says everybody that they meet, best boss ever was this person. And so you've got people who want to work for you and for your company. So that's how I recommend people approach this very vexing challenge. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Yeah. And, and look, you probably, to what you said, you're probably going to have the same outcome where either, either they left because they were annoyed because you felt that you held them back and, and they're going to think of you as sort of a, a, you know, someone who trampled on their career, or you're going to, you're going to be honest and tell them you don't have the right opportunity for them to grow and encourage them to leave and go build themselves. And they're going to remember you, <laughs> you know, right. for the rest of your career, but you're going to have the same outcome either way. So which do you choose, right? And right. when you look at it that way, it's it's easy. And the reason, though, it's not easy because our ego gets involved. It's always yeah, it is the e- ego. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, you know, there's that famous quote, and I see it all the time, where the, the the CFO says, you know, what if we train our people and they leave, and the CFO says, you know, what if we don't and they stay? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love that quote. So one of the things that you said that. Uh, when I saw you speak for the first time, and it really stuck with me and solved a huge problem for me, was was frustration of genius is that what's easy for you is not easy for everyone else. And I realized one of the things that that I'm good at is is and and I just did, I did strength finders, and my number one was relator, right? And when people are stuck with a problem with a client or a partner, and they're sort of at war, somehow I can get on the phone and like. 30 seconds, I can understand what the issue is with the person, I can resolve it. And so people would bring me in to solve these things. And I'd be getting so frustrated being like, why can't you just do this? Like, I'd solved it in 30 seconds. Like, what, what, why is this weeks of agony? And when I heard you say that, I really was like, well, I, I mean, if it took me 30 seconds, and I'm good, like, then, then these are probably things I should do. So can you dive into that a little bit? Because that was, I, it was hugely helpful for me personally. Oh, I love that. And I, yeah, so so let me give the, the story behind it. So one of the, th- the questions that you're always asking yourself is how do I move up an S-curve faster and how do I even know that I'm on the right S-curve for me? And one of the accelerants is like play to your distinctive strengths. So not only what you do well, um, but what other people around you don't necessarily do well. And one of the questions that you can ask yourself to figure out what your strengths are is what exasperates you or frustrates you. And the reason that you ask that is that if you're looking at someone saying, well, this is just common sense, like, or someone's giving you a compliment, and you're like, well, everybody knows how to do that. And they're looking at you saying, no, everybody doesn't know how to do that. And then you can start to recognize that this is something that is one of your strengths or one of your superpowers. But it very often will come that you're exasperated because you're just like, I just don't get why people can't do that. It's like for me, when people or, can't- Or do it, to be honest, it can't do it as well as I can. Or why Why? Yeah. Why is this so hard for them when I can do this in five seconds? Like so easy. Yeah. Like, yeah, for, for me, I'm really good at spelling. Like when people can't spell, I'm like, what is your problem? But then I understand what the challenge is because I have a terrible sense of direction. Like we lived in New York City for 10 years. And even after 10 years, excuse me, 11 years, even after 11 years, when I would come up out of the subway and I think East was West and West was East, I was like a perfect contrarian indicator. Like I always got the direction wrong because I just don't have a good sense of direction. So anyway, that's a digression. What I would say to you, anybody who's listening is, Look around when you find yourself saying this is just common sense, you find yourself exasperated or frustrated. Pause for just a minute and say, Oh, okay, what that's telling me is I am really, really good at this. Now that I know that I'm really good at it, how do I use it deliberately on purpose in order to be more effective in the work that I'm doing? And so, for you, you know, coaching moment is like, Okay, if you know you're great at this. How do you put yourself in more situations as a CEO of a business and building a business, more situations where that superpower can help you solve more problems and 
and monetize and productize, it, et cetera, because it's something that you do uniquely and idiosyncratically well, and you want to just do more of it. And if you're tying that into the sort of S curves or people's strengths, I mean, would you would you want to give people even like more difficult challenges within that realm? Yes, yes, exactly. And here's where a lot of us go wrong. Because what we do well is so reflexive and so natural to us, and therefore we get exasperated, we don't actually value it. Right. So then when I say to you, hey, Bob, I want you to go do, you know, have this conversation with a person. You're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, why doesn't she give me something hard to do? It's because it's easy for you. You're not valuing it. So what you want to do in order to really be effective as a leader is to not only identify the things that the people around you do well or that work with you do well, but then give them stretch assignments that require them to draw on those things. So don't make it easy, but allow them to stretch within that lane. And then you start to create magic because you're bring, they're bringing their superpowers to bear on something that's really hard. And right. that's where you, you start to really make a contribution. All right. Well, let's shift to the topic of quickly of work-life integration. So I know you wrote an article for HBR recently about how it's important to use business tactics like planning, scheduling, and careful decision-making in our personal lives. Why is that important? Why do we forget to do that? And you know, do you have sort of a personal story of where that's worked for you? <laughs> physician heal thyself is my starting story. So the way that that article came about is that, you know, I had, I had been out on the road for like three or four weeks and everything worked, you know, really, really well. And then I got home and it just felt like everything had come undone. And part of it was that I didn't, you know, have an infrastructure where is when I'm on the road, I have someone who plans my travel and, you know, tells me here's where you need to be here and there and, and everywhere. And so the, the impetus that for that article, though, was I was talking to one of my colleagues and she's like, well, and I was saying, well, I just want to be at home and I just want to relax. And she said, well, if you had that, flip it, like flip it and say, when I go to work, I just want to be at work and I want to relax. Like you would fire you. And she's like, why wouldn't you do the same thing when you're at home? Like, why is it that you're not bringing your best self to home? And it was just like, whoa, like that, <laughs> that is right between the eyes. And so the thought that I had after having this conversation with her, between the eyes in a good way, right? Where people show you a truth that you haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. Where they're, they're doing this to help you, right? And, yeah. And oh, yeah. This is the cobbler's kids problem. You know, we never see the stuff that's, that's right in front of us. <laughs> Exactly. And so I just started thinking, all right, so what do I need to do in order to bring my A game to home as well as to work? And so one of the things that a very simple thing that I've started doing is, you know, I have a list every day of the things that I'm going to get done, my top priorities, you know, values, etc. But I've realized, and this is slightly different, but I think it still applies is to say, okay, do I have on my list every day something that I'm going to do that's relevant to home? And on Sundays, which are my day of rest for religious reasons, but also for secular reasons of I need a day of rest so that I don't have stress all the time is I have a different list. Like I make a different list of things that I'm going to get done on that day versus the rest of the week. And that's, again, applying sort of this idea of how do I show up as my best self, whether I'm focused on work or whether I'm focused on family and personal life and, and church life, et cetera. So those are some thoughts for all of you to be thinking about. I guess the question you would all ask yourself is, if I said to myself, well, when I go to work, I just want to relax. And then we come home and say, when I go home, I just want to relax. Like, 
would you hire you as a, a wife, mother, husband, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I think about it. So what are, what are you working on that's exciting now? Do you have any, any new books in the works? Yeah. So, um, we're working on two additional books, but it's still early days. So I'm not ready to talk about what they're about, but they're still going to be within the, you know, sort of framework of S curves and, and personal disruption. Cause that's what I love working on. The thing that I'm really focused on right now, apart from kind of the intellectual property aspect is we're at the low end moving maybe into the sweet spot of building a business of being an entrepreneur around these ideas and what does that look like? Not only, so it's not just, okay, we go give a keynote and sell some books, which is super fun and super exciting, but like, how do you gain traction around those ideas? Whether it's coaching inside of an organization, training the trainers, then licensing the content or certifying people in these ideas and just building a business infrastructure around that, which is something you've obviously been doing for 10 years and doing it really well. And you're, I'd say probably in the sweet spot of that, we're at the low end and it's just fun and interesting to try to figure out how to do it. So any last question for you, and this could be, it's multivariant. It could be singular or repeated and it can be personal or professional, but what is the mistake in your career that you've learned the most from? Okay. I'll give you two. I'll give you one recent one and then one kind of bigger one. So I just finished a, a big trip. It seems like November is a big travel month for a lot of people, November and October and one of the things that um, I don't track things well. And so while I was on this trip, I left my phone somewhere once I lost my credit card and I lost my glasses. Like I lost a lot of stuff and this is not like the first time it's ever happened. And so that's been a kind of a repeated mistake and it's something that is frustrating for me. And I, my daughter's taking a gap year and so she was traveling with me and she's like, mom, you need to come up with a, a mnemonic of like came up with Piccadilly pug, like, you know, phone, computer, debit card, credit card, passport glasses. And I think w- the mistake that I've made a lot, but I'm learning from is that there's an analog here of like, we have to have systems in place, the systems, personal systems that allow us to keep track of where things are. And then also from a business standpoint of like the fact that I was losing stuff, I was kind of taking it personally, like I'm a failure, but really it's just a systems problem. And it's the same with our business when things aren't working. Like it's not that anybody is a failure. It's just that the system didn't work. So we weren't adhering to the systems. And so that's something that I'm working on and it's very iterative because because it just is. So that's one I would say that's kind of a, a chronic one that I'm working on. One that I think is less chronic, but was certainly important and impactful. A few years ago, I was giving a speech to people in the financial services. So kind of thinking, these are my people, but they hated it. Like my ratings, I was like the last, like no one rated me high. Like I think everybody rated me the lowest by far. And it was devastating for me all these comic cards saying how bad it was, but so bad that it really got my attention. I couldn't just brush (laughs) off of like, oh, they didn't like me today, right? They just hated it. And so one of the things that forced me to do is like, okay, so what am I doing wrong? And um, what do I need to do differently? And what I found is it wasn't the content that they didn't like. They just didn't feel, number one, connected to me. And more importantly, and this is something that I learned when I studied Donald Miller's brand, brand story stuff, brand, I think it's called brand story, story brand. And was this idea of in that speech, I was the hero and I made myself the hero. And if you, when you're speaking are the hero, then what is the audience going to do? 
And I understood then that I needed to always, when I speak, make sure that the audience is the hero and I'm the guide. And the content can be the same, but the motivation and how you talk about it and how you frame it had to switch. And when I did that, you know, over the course of several months, and now it's obviously a process where I'm constantly trying to figure out how can I communicate what I'm communicating better. But when I switched to making the audience or the people in the audience, the hero, then I started becoming a top rated speaker. And it was all on the shift of my approach and my perspective. But it was, as you can imagine, really tough, but a really important lesson. It had to be bad enough to your point earlier that it yeah, got Yeah, I was saying it reminded me of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly. It got my attention. Yeah, we usually we usually bottom out before things get better. Well, that that's one <laughs> exactly. a lot of people can learn from. I've worked with some speaking coaches and yeah, they actually, you know, suggest really starting with a sort of humble pie beginning to get people engaged with you and then moving into the the sort of the expert demonstration phase. Um, so there's I think there's some definitely some truth to that as a formula that works. Mm. Mm, I love that humble pie. And then you move to the expert. Yeah. And and you think about it, like when someone speaks, if you feel connected to them, then you want to hear what they have to say. If you don't feel connected to them, you just don't, you just don't. Right. If you you were giving a speech on how to make a great speech and you started with that story of here are my comment cards from this speech, right. You would have the audience sort of endeared to you from the beginning. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, Winnie, where can people find out about you and all your work and your assessments and all the stuff you have out books, all the stuff you have out there? Yeah, I think the easiest place is just to go to our website, WhitneyJohnson.com. Um, and, you know, from a understanding more our work, I would listen to podcast episodes since we're podcast listeners in this, in this crowd is episodes 100 and 120 that really take a deep dive on taking the right risks, playing to your strengths. I think that's a great starting place if you want to just have a better sense of, of the work that we're doing. Okay, great. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for taking the time to talk all things personal disruption with us today. Oh, thank you, Bob, for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Whitney and her books and resources, everything she just mentioned on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your continued support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. 
As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.